This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Alarms and Discursions by G. K. Chesterton. Section 11, Chapters 31 through 33. The Flat Freak. Some time ago, a subtropical dinner was given by some South African millionaire. I forget his name, and so very likely does he. The humor of this was so subtle and haunting that it has been imitated by another millionaire who has given a North Pole dinner in a grand hotel, on which he managed to spend gigantic sums of money. I do not know how he did it. Perhaps they had silver for snow and great sapphires for lumps of ice. Anyhow, it seems to have cost rather more to bring the pole to London than to take Peary to the pole. All this, one would say, does not concern us. We do not want to go to the pole or to the hotel. I, for one, cannot imagine which would be the more dreary and disgusting, the real North Pole or the sham one. But as a mere matter of psychology that merry pastime, there is a question that is not unentertaining. Why is it that all this scheme of ice and snow leaves us cold? Why is it that you and I feel we would, on the whole, rather spend the evening with two or three stable boys in the pothouse than take part in that pallid Antarctic joke? Why does the modern millionaire jest bore a man to death with the mere thought of it? That it does bore man to death I take for granted, and shall do so until somebody writes to me in cold ink and tells me that he really thinks it is funny. Now, it is not a sufficient explanation to say that the joke is silly. All jokes are silly. That is what they are for. If you ask some sincere elemental person, a woman for instance, what she thinks of a good sentence from Dickens, she will say that it is too silly. When Mr. Weller, Sr., assured Mr. Weller, Jr., that the circumvented was a more tender word than circumscribed, the remark was at least as silly as it was sublime. It is in vain, then, to object to senseless jokes. The very definition of a joke is that it need have no sense, except that one wild and supernatural sense which we call the sense of humor. Humor is meant, in a literal sense, to make a game of man, that is, to dethrone him from his official dignity and hunt him like game. It is meant to remind us human beings that we have things about us as ungainly and ludicrous as the nose of the elephant or the neck of the giraffe. If laughter does not touch a sort of fundamental folly, it does not do its duty in bringing us back to an enormous and original simplicity. Nothing has been worse than the modern notion that a clever man can make a joke without taking part in it, without sharing in the general absurdity that such a situation creates. It is unpardonable conceit not to laugh at your own jokes. Joking is undignified. That is why it is so good for one's soul. Do not fancy you can be a detached wit and avoid being a buffoon. You cannot. If you are the court jester, you must be the court fool. 
Whatever it is, therefore, that wearies us in these wealthy jokes, like the North Pole dinner, it is not merely that men make fools of themselves. When Dickens describes Mr. Chuckster, Dickens was, strictly speaking, making a fool of himself, for he was making a fool out of himself, and every kind of real lark, from acting a charade to making a pun, does consist in restraining one's 999 serious selves and letting the fool loose. The dullness of the millionaire's joke is much deeper. It is not silly at all. It is solely stupid. It does not consist in ingenuity limited, but merely of inanity expanded. There is a considerable difference between a wit making a fool of himself and a fool making a wit of himself. The true explanation, I fancy, may be stated thus. We can all remember it in the case of the really inspiriting parties and fooleries of our youth. The only real fun is to have limited materials and a good idea. This explains the perennial popularity of impromptu private theatricals. These fascinate because they give such a scope for invention and variety, with the most domestic restriction of machinery. A tea-rosy may have to do for an admiral's cocked hat. It all depends on whether the amateur actor can swear like an admiral. A hearthrug may have to do for a bear's fur. It all depends on whether the wearer is a polished and versatile man of the world and can grunt like a bear. A clergyman's hat, to my own private and certain knowledge, can be punched and thumped into an exact shape of a policeman's helmet. It all depends on the clergyman. I mean, it depends on his permission, his imprimatur, his nihil obstate. Clergymen can be policemen, rugs can rage like wild animals, tea cozies can smell of the sea, if only there is at the back of them all one bright and amusing idea. What is really funny about Christmas charades in any average home is that there is a contrast between commonplace resources and one comic idea. What is deadly dull about the millionaire banquet is that there is a contrast between colossal resources and no idea. That is the abyss of inanity in such feasts. It may be literally called a yawning abyss. The abyss, the vast chasm between the money power employed and the thing it is employed on. To make a big joke out of a broomstick, a barrow, and an old hat, that is great. But to make a small joke out of mountains of emeralds and tons of gold, surely that is humiliating. The North Pole is not a very good joke to start with. An icicle hanging on one's nose is a simple sort of humor in any case. If a set of spontaneous mummers got the effect cleverly with cut crystals from the early Victorian chandelier, there might really be something suddenly funny in it. But what should we say of hanging diamonds on a hundred human noses merely to make that precious joke about icicles? What can be more abject than the union of elaborate and research arrangements? with an old and obvious point. The clown with its red-hot poker and the string of sausages is all very well in his way. But think of a string of pâté de foie gras sausages at a guinea apiece. Think of a red-hot poker cut out of a single ruby. Imagine such fantasticalities of expense 
with such a tameness and staleness of design. We may even admit the practical joke, if it is domestic and simple. We may concede that apple pie beds and butter slides are sometimes useful things for the education of pompous persons living the higher life. But imagine a man making a butter slide and telling everybody it was made with the most expensive butter. Picture an apple pie bed of purple and cloth of gold. It is not hard to see that such schemes would lead simultaneously to a double boredom, weariness of the costly and complex method, and of the meager and trivial thought. This is the true analysis, I think, of that chill and tedium that strikes to the soul of any intelligent man when he hears of such elephantine pranks. That is why we should feel that freak dinners would not even be freakish. That is why we feel that expensive arctic feasts would probably be a frost. If it be said that such things do no harm, I hasten in one sense at least to agree. Far from it, they do good. They do good in the most vital manner of modern times, for they prove and print in huge letters the truth which our society must learn or perish. They prove that wealth in society, as now constituted, does not tend to get into the hands of the thrifty or the capable, but actually tends to get into the hands of wastrels and imbeciles. And it proves that the wealthy class of today is quite as ignorant about how to enjoy itself as about how to rule other people. That it cannot make its government govern, or its education educate, we may take as a trifling weakness of oligarchy. But pleasure we do look to see in such a class, and it has surely come to its decrepitude when it cannot make its pleasure please. THE GARDEN OF THE SEA One sometimes hears from persons of the chillier type of the culture the remark that plain country people do not appreciate the beauty of the country. This is an error rooted in the intellectual pride of mediocrity and it is one of the many examples of a truth in the idea that extremes meet. Thus, to appreciate the virtues of the mob, one must either be on a level with it, as I am, or be really high up, like the saints. It is roughly the same with aesthetics. Slang and rude dialect can be relished by a really literary taste, but not by a merely bookish taste. And when these cultivated cranks say that rustics do not talk of nature in an appreciative way, they really mean that they do not talk in a bookish way. They do not talk bookishly about clouds or stones or pigs or slugs or horses or anything you please. They talk piggishly about pigs and sluggishly, I suppose, about slugs and are refreshingly horsey about horses. They speak in a stony way of stones, and they speak in a cloudy way of clouds, and this is surely the right way. And if by any chance a simple, intelligent person from the country comes in contact with any aspect of nature unfamiliar and arresting, such a person's comment is always worth remark. It is sometimes an epigram, and at worst it is never a quotation. Consider, for instance, what waste of words, imitation, and ambiguity the ordinary educated person in the big towns could pour out on the subject of the sea. A country girl I know in the country of Buckingham 
had never seen the sea in her life until the other day. When she was asked what she thought of it, she said it was like cauliflowers. Now that is a piece of pure literature, vivid, entirely independent and original, and perfectly true. I had always been haunted with an analogous kinship which I could never locate. Cabbages always remind me of the sea, and the sea always reminds me of cabbages. It is partly, perhaps, the veined mingling of violet and green, as in the sea a purple that is almost dark red may mix with a green that is almost yellow, and still be the blue sea as a whole. But it is more the grand curves of the cabbage that curl over cavernously like waves, and it is partly again that dreamy repetition as of a pattern that made two great poets, Aeschylus and Shakespeare, use a word like multitudinous of the ocean. But just where my fancy halted, the Buckinghamshire young woman rushed, so to speak, to my imaginative rescue. Cauliflowers are twenty times better than cabbages, for they show the wave-breaking as well as curling, and the efflorescence of the branching foam, blind, bubbling, and opaque. Moreover, the strong lines of life are suggested. The arches of the rushing waves have all the rigid energy of green stalks, as if the whole sea were one great green plant with one immense white flower rooted in the abyss. Now a large number of delicate and superior persons would refuse to see the force in that kitchen-garden comparison, because it is not connected with any of the ordinary maritime sentiments as stated in books and songs. The aesthetic amateur would say that he knew what large and philosophical thoughts he ought to have by the boundless deep, he would say that he was not a greengrocer who would think first of greens, to which I should reply, like Hamlet, apropos of a parallel profession, I would you were so honest a man. The mention of Hamlet reminds me, by the way, that besides the girl who had never seen the sea, I knew a girl who had never seen a stage play. She was taken to Hamlet, and she said it was very sad. There is another case of going to the primordial point which is overlaid by learning and secondary impressions. We are so used to thinking of Hamlet as a problem that we sometimes quite forget that it is a tragedy, just as we are so used to thinking of the sea as vast and vague that we scarcely notice when it is white and green. But there is another quarrel involved in which the young gentleman of our culture comes into violent collision with the young lady of the cauliflowers. The first essential of the merely bookless view of the sea is that it is boundless and gives a sentiment of infinity. Now it is quite certain, I think, that the cauliflower simile was partly created by exactly the opposite impression, the impression of boundary and of barrier. The girl thought of it as a field of vegetables, even as a yard of vegetables. The girl was right. The ocean only suggests infinity when you cannot see it. A sea mist may seem endless, but it is not a sea. So far from being vague and vanishing, the sea is the one hard straight line in nature. It is the one plain limit, the only thing that God has made that really looks like a wall. Compared to the sea, not only sun and cloud are chaotic and doubtful, but solid mountains and standing forests may be said to melt and fade and flee in the presence of that lonely iron line. The old naval phrase that the seas are England's bulwarks is not a frigid and artificial metaphor. 
He came into the head of some genuine sea-dog when he was genuinely looking at the sea. For the edge of the sea is like the edge of a sword. It is sharp, military, and decisive. It really looks like a bolt or bar, and not like a mere expansion. It hangs in heaven, grey or green or blue, changing in colour, but changeless in form, behind all the slippery contours of the land and all the savage softness of the forests, like the scales of God held even. It hangs a perpetual reminder of that divine reason and justice, which abides behind all compromises and all legitimate variety, the one straight line, the limit of the intellect, the dark and ultimate dogma of the world. The Sentimentalist Sentimentalism is the most broken reed on which righteousness can lean. These were, I think, the exact words of a distinguished American visitor at the Guildhall, and may heaven forgive me if I do him a wrong. It was spoken in illustration of the folly of supporting Egyptian and other Oriental nationalism, and it has tempted me to some reflections on the first word of the sentence. The sentimentalist, roughly speaking, is the man who wants to eat his cake and have it. He has no sense of honor about ideas. He will not see that one must pay for an idea as for anything else. He will not see that any worthy idea, like an honest woman, can only be won on its own terms and with its logical chain of loyalty. One idea attracts him, another idea really inspires him, a third idea flatters him, a fourth idea pays him. He will have them all at once in one wild intellectual harem, no matter how much they quarrel and contradict each other. The sentimentalist is a philosophic profligate, who tries to capture every mental beauty without reference to its rival beauties, who will not even be off with the old love before he is on with the new. Thus, if a man were to say, I love this woman, but I may some day find my affinity in some other woman, he would be a sentimentalist. He would be saying, I will eat my wedding cake and keep it. Or if a man should say, I am a Republican, believing in the equality of citizens, but when the government has given me my peerage, I can do infinite good as a kind of landlord and wise legislator, then that man would be a sentimentalist. He would be trying to keep at the same time the classic austerity of equality and also the vulgar excitement of an aristocrat. Or if a man should say, I am in favor of religious equality, but I must preserve the Protestant succession, he would be a sentimentalist of a grosser and more improbable kind. This is the essence of the sentimentalist, that he seeks to enjoy every idea without its sequence and every pleasure without its consequence. Now, it would really be hard to find a worse case of this inconsequent sentimentalism than the theory of the British Empire advanced by Mr. Roosevelt himself in his attack on sentimentalists. For the imperial theory, the Roosevelt and Kipling theory of our relation to Eastern races, is simply one of eating the Oriental cake, I suppose a sultana cake, and at the same time leaving it alone. Now there are two sane attitudes of a European statesman towards Eastern peoples, and there are only two. First, he may simply say that the less we have to do with them, the better. 
that whether they are lower than us or higher, they are so catastrophically different that the more we go our way and they go theirs, the better for all parties concerned. I will confess to some tenderness for this view. There is much to be said for letting that calm, immemorial life of slave and sultan, temple and palm tree flow on as it has always flowed. The best reason of all, the reason that affects me most finely, is that if we left the rest of the world alone, we might have some time for attending to our own affairs, which are urgent to the point of excruciation. All history points to this, that intensive cultivation in the long run triumphs over the widest extensive cultivation. Or, in other words, that making one's own field superior is far more effective than reducing other people's fields to inferiority. If you cultivate your own garden and grow an especially large cabbage, people will probably come to see it, whereas the life of one selling small cabbages round the whole district is often forlorn. Now the imperial pioneer is essentially a commercial traveller, and a commercial traveller is essentially a person who goes to see people because they don't want to see him. As long as empires go about urging their ideas on others, I always have a notion that the ideas are no good. If they were really so splendid, they would make the country preaching them a wonder of the world. That is the true ideal. A great nation ought not to be a hammer, but a magnet. Men went to the medieval Sabone because it was worth going to. Men went to old Japan because only there could they find the unique and exquisite old Japanese art. Nobody will ever go to modern Japan, nobody worth bothering about, I mean, because modern Japan has made the huge mistake of going to the other people, becoming a common empire. The mountain has condescended to Mahomet, and henceforth Mahomet will whistle for it when he wants it. That is my political theory, that we should make England worth copying instead of telling everybody to copy her. But it is not the only possible theory. There is another view of our relations to such places as Egypt and India, which is entirely tenable. It may be said, we Europeans are the heirs of the Roman Empire. When all is said, we have the largest freedom, the most exact science, the most solid romance. We have a deep, though undefined, obligation to give as we have received from God, because the tribes of men are truly thirsting for these things as for water. All men really want clear laws. We can give clear laws. All men really want hygiene. We can give hygiene. We are not merely imposing Western ideas. We are simply fulfilling human ideas for the first time. On this line, I think, it is possible to justify the forts of Africa and the railroads of Asia. But on this line we must go much further. If it is our duty to give our best, there can be no doubt about what is our best. The great thing our Europe has made is the citizen, the idea of the average man, free and full of honor, voluntarily invoking on his own sin the just vengeance of his city. All else we have done is mere machinery for that. Railways exist only to carry the citizen forts only to defend him, electricity only to light him, medicine only to heal him. Popularism, the idea of the people alive and patiently feeding history, that we cannot give, 
for it exists everywhere, east and west. But democracy, the idea of the people fighting and governing, that is the only thing we have to give. Those are the two roads, but between them weakly wavers the sentimentalist, that is, the imperialist of the Roosevelt School. He wants to have it both ways, to have the splendors of success without the perils. Europe may enslave Asia because it is flattering, but Europe must not free Asia because that is responsible. It tickles his imperial taste that the Hindus should have European hats. It is too dangerous if they have European heads. He cannot leave Asia Asiatic, yet he dares not contemplate Asia as European. Therefore, he proposes to have in Egypt railway signals, but not flags, dispatch boxes, but not ballot boxes. In short, the sentimentalist decides to spread the body of Europe without the soul. End of chapters 31 through 33